from Bayside Church International Victor Harbour. This is Chad Mansbridge. I had the privilege of sharing today for the first time in a while. So buckle in, because you know the you know the whole lot of stored stuff. No, just kidding. Uh, if you're visiting today, I'm so glad you're here. My name's Chad, and I, I also have the privilege of being on the ministry team here. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, every now and again, I get to take the microphone and uh, ex- expouse expouse and take it I shall uh, and expouse the scripture. I'm going to do what tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of preachers around the world are going to do today. I'm going to ask you to turn, <laughs> I'm going to reference the preaching at the royal wedding <laughs> um, for a start and um, somehow come to terms with my own inadequacies as a preacher. Um, do you know, <clears throat> last night, almost I mean, the stats, are, the stats are many and varied, but uh, upwards of 1.8 to 2 billion people heard Jesus declared in an enthusiastic, energetic way. And uh, I'm happy for that. So get your African-American on today and let's, let's do this, all right? Because today, everyone is Pentecostal. That's just how it works on Pentecost Sunday, is that no matter... Where you are in the world, hundreds of thousands of preachers today will be asking their congregations to turn to Acts chapter 2 because whether you're an Episcopalian, I think Mr. Curry was last night, uh, Church of England, obviously origin somewhere there, uh, or um, whatever church tradition you are from around the world, even my Greek Orthodox uh, brother, um, uh, around the world, the Christian world is uh, celebrating a day called Pentecost and uh, we, I, my job today is to help educate as well as celebrate on this amazing day because the day of Pentecost is not just a historical event. My, event. my point today is to encourage you to take hold of the fact that Pentecost is for today. The person of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, is the same 2,000 years ago. He is the same today. The person of Pentecost is the same. The purpose of Pentecost is the same to equip and empower God's people to be effective ministers of his love, truth and life throughout all the world. It's no good having a great commission unless you've got a great empowerment to go with that great commission. And the reason it is a great co-mission is because it's not just a mission that we receive as individuals, it is a collective mission that we also share with Holy Spirit who is on mission with us to show people who Jesus really is. So we have the same person of Pentecost is the same, the purpose of Pentecost is the same. The passion of Pentecost should still be the same. Come on, you're all Pentecostals today. I told you that. The, the priorities of Pentecost is today. The promise of Pentecost is the same for today, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and be in you, that you will be my witnesses to the end of the world. And so today, Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at the day of Pentecost. And everyone said, glory, hallelujah, praise hallelujah, something. All right. Praise hallelujah. It's a word. It's a word. Because tongues, of course, comes into today, so you can say whatever you want. I mean, that's... <laughs> Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. I've preached on Pentecost, obviously, a number of times, and in, in, over years as I sort of looked at different notes, because, you know, let's face it, I'm going to hash something together today, right? Um, I have done a nice little three-point sermon on Pentecost. Today's not the day for that, okay? We're going to walk and, and, and celebrate and 
and engage with the Holy Spirit as we go. So let's do this. Chapter 2, verse 1 of the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost had come, the tense really means had fully developed or fully come, they were all together in one place. Keep that verse there and stop. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. We know we've got some type of idea what that place is from Acts chapter 1. They were gathering together in a room somewhere. It's possible. Uh, this may be a different room. They may have been, been in an area of the temple because they are celebrating Pentecost. The word Pentecost means 50th. Okay? It's a mathematical term, really. Um, this part of our Bible that we're reading is, um, was written in the first century and the first century, the main predominant language of the world, this part of the world at least, the, the, the Roman Empire, was the Greek language. And so the word Pentecost has Greek origins, okay? Big fat Greek wedding, everything has Greek origins, right? And uh, Windex. And so <laughs> I have Greeks in my family. I'm allowed to make jokes. Um, and so the day of Pentecost just means 50th. It's the Greek word for 50th. It was uh, basically, it celebrated a festival that occurred seven weeks after Passover. So yes, while this is written in Greek, we are reading into a context where people are Hebrew people, Jewish people. Okay, this is in Jerusalem that this is happening. And they have a tradition after their Passover festival, which, re which reminds them of when Moses took God's people out of Egypt. Okay, they killed a lamb did the Passover thing. Uh, this was, that was an annual festival that they had. There was three main festivals that all God's people had to come to Jerusalem to remember. Passover was one of them, and Pentecost was the second one. Right? The Hebrew word is Shavuot, and you might hear, if you start Googling this weekend, Jewish people use that word today. It's the day of Shavuot, or yesterday was. And uh, it celebrates what they call the festival of weeks, or harvest, Okay, this was the time where the barley harvest had finished and so they, they bring a big offering to the Lord during this week, uh, during this weekend. And one of the reasons it's called the Festival of Weeks, for all the numbers people out there, is because day number 50 simply means that it's the day after 49 days. Brilliant. Just, just brilliant. You get, you get a calculator. That's about as deep as it gets, I'm afraid. <clears throat> but the thing about 49 is that 49 is 7 times, okay, 7 times 7. So we've got 7 weeks. So that's why today, if you look back at your, cal if, no, your calculator, your calendar, and you go back 7 weeks, you'll find Easter. Okay? So that's why today is the, the day of Pentecost. 7 times 7 is 49. It is the 50th day since Passover. So in a New Testament sort of Christian understanding, it's uh, not only the 40th, uh, 49th day or the 50th day from Passover, but it's 50 days after Jesus had died. Because remember, Jesus was crucified <coughs> on the Passover weekend. So while the Jewish people are celebrating their, um, their uh, festivals from, that are given by Moses, okay, now this becomes a Christian tradition. Jesus was crucified on Passover. And on the 50th day after that, something very, very significant happened okay the 50th day and this whole thing of seven times seven for numbers people uh don't get too weird about it 
but there's a lot of multiples of seven in the scripture. We all know that seven is quite an important number, all right? You just get into Daniel, prophetic books particularly, there's a hang of a lot of sevens. It all goes back to the Garden of Eden story and the creation story about the seventh day. And so that's a, a very common thing. The number 40 is also a very common number. We know that after Jesus died, rose from the dead, he hung around and spoke to his disciples for 40 days. This mirrors Moses, okay? 40 days, 40 nights on the mountain, um, etc., etc. So these are very key times there is reason to believe that in some of the uses of the number 40 in the scripture it may be metaphorical it may be a figure of speech and as you're reading through judges or those of you reading through judges or joshua we see that a number of um, kings led for 40 years either a massive coincidence or it's just a way of saying there's it's a it's a time of completeness or new beginnings maybe okay because 40 is 8 times 5, okay, 5 is the number of grace and 8 is the new day of the next week, so it's a brand new beginning, so it's the grace for a new beginning, okay. Uh, 10 is the number of completion, 10 times 4, 4 is the day where God created the sun, moon and stars that governed, okay, that governed the, the, the day and the night, so we've got this thing of a gov uh, at the end of a certain government can take place after 40 years years or 40 days where there's a change in governance mm, okay so that's why sometimes kings or judges it says they ruled for 40 years it may not be exactly meant to be taken literally it may be metaphoric you know what i'm going to say now talk about that over lunch okay but we've got this idea certainly in in acts chapter in this part of history it seems very likely that it was the literal 40 days that jesus spoke because we know mathematically that there's 50 days between Passover and this day. Jesus spoke for 40, and then after 40 of those days, he says, now don't go anywhere, boys. Don't go back fishing. Don't go back to the country towns that you were from. Hang about, hang about, hang about. You know what I mean? Because the Holy Spirit's going to come soon. And he didn't say that this was going to happen on the day of Pentecost. He just said, stay until it happens, and you know when it will. So let's see what happens. Or should I say one more thing about 50? Yeah, numbers, numbers. No, I, I do. 7, 40. Yeah, okay. One of the significant things about the number 50 that's a bit subtle, and I only found this myself when I was studying on this when I was writing my book. <clears throat> Over here in the story of Moses, God's people come through the Red Sea. Three, about six weeks later, they come to Mount Sinai and God gives the Ten Commandments. Jewish tradition today says that that was a seven-week journey. Okay, so if you look up Shabbat today, they not only celebrate the Festival of Weeks, but they also celebrate the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, that tradition only came about in the second century after, after um, well, after the first century, okay? It only came about in this part of history, okay? That's awesome. Um, once once uh, there was a once Jesus had left and they had this 40 years and the Romans came in and had a war against the Jews and destroyed the temple, um, Judaism was really struggling to find its feet. What do we do now uh, that we don't have a temple and we can't worship, or we can't do all the worship things that we're meant to be doing? And so a new tradition started to form in this part of history. And a lot of those were recorded in what they call the Talmud. There's actually two of them, but the, the Talmud and it's sort of oral tradition joined with rabbin, rabbinic teaching. 
And it was around this part in history, the second and third century, that this tradition developed that, oh, guess what? It was actually 50 days after coming out of Egypt that God gave the law. And so that's why today Jewish people celebrate the coming of the Ten Commandments. That was for free, okay? But I'm not talking about that, I'm over here. So, but what happens is God's people come out of Egypt, they come to the, um, the what's it called? The mountain, mountain of Mount Sinai. God gives them to the Ten Commandments. He thunders from heaven. Wind, fire, smoke, God speaking. He wants, God's peop- he wants people to hear his voice and he wants them to relate to him. But when people, they freak out and they say, no, 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 Moses, we want you to do the conversation with God on our behalf. And so what we see is that Moses speaks to God, he goes up the mountain and God gives him all these laws and instructions. And Moses comes back down and he says, listen, this is the laws that God wants us to obey. And there's a whole, a whole stack of them. And in Exodus 24, it's a very, in my opinion, a very overlooked chapter. That's why I'm spending time on it. In Exodus 24, he says, these are the laws God has given us and we must obey them. And in that story, the people say, yes, we will obey. We'll do everything God tells us to do. They've already said this. This is actually the second time they've said it. Moses then writes down everything God told him while he was up there. Writes it all down and he reads it out aloud. It's called the book of the law. And as he reads it out aloud to them, they hear and then they say, yes, we will do anything God says. We will obey God perfectly. No worries. And then what happens, here's where the number 50 comes in. Moses gets a a bull and he kills it and he gets the blood of that animal and this is a bit gross but he sprinkles it on the altar and on the book of the law and then he sprinkles half of it on the people and um, he says God is now making a blood covenant with us this is serious business it's not like you're entering into a bit of a handshake deal with God yeah mate we'll you know we'll, we'll keep friendly if you're happy No, this is actually a real serious deal. It's a blood oath today. And after making that blood covenant with people, this is where the maths comes in. He goes up the mountain with the 70 elders, with the 70 leaders of Israel. And they climb the mountain, they eat and drink, and they see visions of God up there. And then they come back down. To go up and to come down takes two days. Then what happens is God says, come back with Joshua. So Moses and Josh go up, And about halfway, they stop for six days. And the glory cloud of God is there, but God says, just hang about. Then on the seventh day, God says, Moses, you come into my glory now. And so on the seventh day, Moses goes up with God, and we all know that he's there for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. So you've got 40 days and 40 nights, seven days. Here with Josh, six on the seventh, he goes in. And then the two days where he went up with the leaders, sprinkling of blood, after two days plus seven plus 40, you've got 49 days. So after the sprinkling of blood, 49 days later, in other words, on the 50th day, well done, maths, that's when Moses comes down with the tablets in his hands. And as he comes down the mountain with the tablets on the 50th day, God's people are disobeying, okay, they're worshipping a golden calf, And according to the new rule book, according to the law, that meant God would judge them. That's the agreement that they signed up for in the whole blood thing. Okay, So on that day, God's judgment breaks out against them. The fire of his wrath comes. A plague kills a bunch of people. The Levites, who become priests, okay, 
they take swords and they pierce it through the hearts of their brothers and kill them. And that day, 3,000 people die. Which is why when you come to the New Testament now in the first century, it calls what happened here a covenant of death. Jews don't celebrate this day today. <laughs> okay. um, this, is, this is a covenant of death. But it's interesting. This death day happened on the 50th day after the blood of that covenant was spilt. And it's a little bit like buying a business or buying a house, you know. You can pay for something, you enter into an agreement, but there's like a settlement period and it doesn't take effect until seven weeks later. So this is kind of what happened. They enter into a deal with God, okay, and then the lawyers work out all the details for seven weeks and then suddenly settlement day, that, that deal that we signed seven weeks ago is now in effect. That's what happened in the Old Testament and that's what I believe we see is happening in the New Testament where the blood of Jesus was shed and on the 50th day, that relationship, that covenant that he purchased with his blood is now going to start to come into effect. Okay? So let's see what happens. Some of you? Okay, good. All right, verse 2. Suddenly. Suddenly. Suddenly, after 10 days, the sound that was like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. This is a supernatural sound. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Those of you who know me for a while, you know that I make a point of saying this does not say the fire came and rested on their heads. It says the fire rested on them. On them. Jesus promised that you would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which means covered from head to toe. So I believe what actually happened this day was not that there was a little flickering flame on their head, doesn't say head, but fire came on them. I believe what was seen that day was they were like human pillars from the top of their head to the, to the, the bottom of their feet. They were covered in fire. Because this image of the pillar of fire takes us right back and wind takes us right back again to the days of Moses. This is a picture of a new community being created. Because at the Exodus, when God's people come out of Egypt, they come to the Red Sea and the wind of God blows. Holds back the sea with a mighty wind. And the cloud of God's presence and the fire by night leads them on. We've got wind and we've got fire as a whole new community comes out of bondage and become the nation of God. And so we have here the recreation of a new community. These were sights and these were sounds from the heavenly realm, supernatural sights and sounds to display and to communicate something significant is happening today. And we can, there's little theories about what exactly the wind was. Was the wind the Holy Spirit or was the wind angels? Okay, because he makes his servants, angels are described as being wind and fire in the book of Psalms, so it could be, oh, maybe this is angelic, I don't care, whatever, you can argue that. But the point is, this is God himself saying, these are my people, I am in the house. And that is another hugely significant thing about the fire resting on people. Because as you understand Old Testament history, you know that when Moses built the sanctuary, when he built the tent of meeting, the moment they finished building that thing, the fire came and rested on top. And incidentally, it was there for seven weeks, seven times seven. It's another 
50th day saying, the fire came. When David and then Solomon built the temple, the moment they finished building that temple, the fire came in that era. The fire came on that temple to say, this is my endorsement on this place. When Nehemiah and those guys in that in the restoration period, built the temple. The fire of God did not come on that temple. There was no manifest glory of God. They were still waiting for God to come to the house. There's different theories about this. I don't, I don't mind what you believe, but when Jesus was crucified on the cross, it says the temple curtain was torn. Remember that? And some people believe, well, the temple curtain was torn so that God could get out and be with people. I believe the temple curtain was torn so that people could look in and see God's not in there. God hasn't been in the house. The glory of God did not come when this second temple was built. So God's actually not in there. Come and see the thing's empty. The fire is yet to come. And it is this day on the day of Pentecost where God's fire comes on his temple. Damo had a word before in pre-service prayer about us being living stones, being built together as a temple. That is a, those living stones, are, each of them have the fire of God come on them. Okay? It's interesting about this story that the fire came on all of them, but the fire came on each of them. Okay? So y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Y'all are and you are. All of us and each of us. God's saying, my endorsement is on you. That's one of the powerful manifestations of the Spirit to say, these are my people. These are my people. These are my people, yeah. I'm getting my American back on again. These are my people. Come on. And then what does it say? All of them, verse 4, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages or tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All of them were filled. What I love about this is in the previous verse, we just saw that the place they were in was filled, which means their, their, their outside environment was changed. Wow, God is in the house. And then this verse says each of them were filled. The Holy Spirit's job is not only to change an outward atmosphere or environment. The Holy Spirit's work is to come inside and to change your inward environment. Okay, and this is God's solution to the history that is witnessed over the years where God's people have always had external God coming to them. God coming from the outside. God coming from the outside and changing their environment. And now all of a sudden, it's not just enough for God. No, 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 no. Now he's the solution. It's not just enough to have God come from the outside and change your external environment. The Holy Spirit works from the inside out and wants to fill you and work from the inside out. Paul says, I'm waiting for Christ to be formed in you. It is super important, the environment you place yourself in. Yes, bad company corrupts good character. So you can be a good person, but you are permeable. Okay, stuff, stuff can come in and out and you will be affected by, by the environment around you. You may not choose to smoke, but if you're hanging around an environment of smoking, that thing will affect you. So choosing your environment is important. Being in environments uh, is a very helpful thing, but don't just bank on that environment because what is more imp as important, also important, is, <laughs> haven't worked out the maths of that, is the environment that is within you. Because that is the thing that will sustain you. And so I'm very happy to say, Holy Spirit, come, 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 come. And I'm very happy to say, Holy Spirit, rise, 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 rise. Both are true. I'm happy with either. Yeah? And so, yeah, okay, done. <laughs> and this fire burns. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, which means God is generous 
with his Holy Spirit. And one of the evidences of that generosity is that these people spoke in tongues that they hadn't, they hadn't learned. In fact, they're not only speaking in tongues, but as we, if you read on further, it says they were praising God in other languages. What a powerful thing. As Paul would later describe, he says, it's like your spirit can pray without your mind being engaged. And I'm a pretty clever person some days of the week after a couple of coffees. But I'm super grateful that one of the evidences or outworkings of Holy Spirit's presence is the ability to allow my spirit to pray without my head having to come up with words. Some of you know when I was 16, I had a car accident, knocked unconscious. And my friend who was in the back seat, who was conscious the whole time, said, first thing that happened, Chad, is he said, I saw you raise your arms through the shattered windshield. And he said, you were singing in Italian. This guy's not a Christian. He said, you were chanting something. And he said, I knew you were praying, but I just didn't understand the words you were saying. At 16 years of age, that happened to me because at 15 years of age, the Holy Spirit came upon me and I began to pray in tongues for the first time. And I developed that as a prayer language so that that day when I hit that truck at 80 k's, 60-something k's an hour, when my brain was inactive, my spirit was alive and well. And my spirit was able to lift my hands. My spirit was able to pray and praise God in that situation. What an amazing thing. RyanRufus.com for a good article on speaking in tongues. God's putting his spirit inside of people. As you continue to read, we won't keep reading, but people look at them. They say in verse 12 that the crowd were amazed and perplexed and said, what the heck is going on? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've just had too much wine to drink. Notice it says they made fun of them. You've got to picture what's happening here. They made fun of them and said they're having, they've had too much wine. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people aren't drunk as you suppose. After all, it's only nine o'clock. Drunkenness, the appearance of drunkenness can have different manifestations. And essentially, you'll break it down to three. When people are drunk, they're either mad they're sad or they're glad and most of us I think have experienced that we've got some of us have got story family history I do of mad drunks that's not a good drunk and I'll tell you what when someone's mad drunk you don't make fun of them when someone's sad drunk you don't make fun of them they're just miserable well maybe you do behind their back but you don't you don't, but if they're sad, that's not, that's not something to be happy about. But then there's glad drunk. And for these people, the onlookers, to be looking at these Christians and make fun of them because they appear drunk, reading between the lines, you can only assume that these people were very, very happy, that they were overwhelmed with joy, overwhelmed that they just could not help. This is what the thing about being filled with the Holy Spirit is. I've got joy deep in my heart or deep in my soul. We sung it this morning. It's good to be down deep in there, but it's also good to come out your face. You know, it's good to come out. It's good to come out, being filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it look like? Well, it looks like joy that comes out that people can see. 
And sometimes that joy is an overwhelming joy like it seems to be here. And sometimes that joy is a sustaining deep joy that is deep within. That when there's no reason to be rejoicing, your heart still stays alive. Because you know I've got joy deep in my soul that's keeping me going. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Ten, possibly ten years ago, Jay and I were at a conference in Adelaide at West Beach. And we were just in a period of life where we were quite dry. Okay, let's just call it that. Whatever. And, uh, and we're at this conference and whilst we're also feeling like we're in a bit of a dry spell, we're also like really hungry for God. Well, not, not dry and giving up, but like dry and, God, I want more. Like I, I really want more of you. We're at this meeting and a friend of ours gets up, Finney, uh, from Sydney, and he says, I just feel like I want to pray for pastors. Those of you who just want to touch from God today. I don't know if I tipped over chairs, but I ran. From down, down the aisle, like just, I, just, I was the first guy up there. Pastors came up to me later and said, I just saw you running. I thought, I better get up there too. What's, what's going on, you know? <laughs> and I ran, I ran and I just, God, I'm just hungry. I want more of you. Finney saw this and they said, why don't you guys come over to our place for, for lunch afterwards? We're in their little cabin. We're just chatting away, normal life, sort of bearing our hearts a little bit. And then they just said, why don't we just pray? And we're praying, just normal prayer. Lord, I thank you for this. I thank you for that. You know, nothing real dramatic. And then suddenly suddenly it was as if or it was a, like a coordinated effort that none of us knew was going to happen we are just praying like normal and then suddenly all four of us are, are, are off our feet and on the floor laughing hysterically like someone had cracked the biggest joke and we all heard it at the same time but no one heard anything it was like a total sudden thing and I was just, Jay and I both were just overwhelmed with an intoxicating joy of breakthrough and God just going, oh, everything's going to be okay. And our heads didn't understand it because there was nothing funny was said. No noises were made by anyone inappropriately. Nothing happened. And the amazing thing was that as our eyes were closed, you know, within trying to recover and pull ourselves together, we're looking around and all four of us are down at the same time. It was an amazing, intoxicating experience. Full of joy. Sometimes overwhelming and sometimes all you've got to hold on to. Either way, it is an evidence of the Holy Spirit. Signs that make you go, wow. Verse 16, he says, No, these people aren't drunk. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people say all people keep that in mind sons and daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions your old men will dream dreams just notice that slight change in language there he says I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people because this is Joel talking to Israel God's people I'll pour out my spirit on all people but it'll be your sons your daughters your oldies and your youngies Pour out my spirit on all, but it'll be yours that will see things happen. Interesting. Even on my servants, my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I see this passage and I think, you know what? God, among other things, is an equal opportunist. Because I will pour out my spirit on all, men, women, young, old, but while he was an equal opportunist, that doesn't mean there was equal or identical outcome. 
My spirit will be available to all, but it will be your sons and daughters and my servants that see this and this and this happen. You see, between the opportunity to receive the spirit is a decision to receive him. I will pour out my spirit and give all an opportunity, but those who become my sons and daughters, those who become my servants, will see this outworking take place in their life. Same opportunity, but different outcomes and outworkings. It all depends how we respond to him. And Peter, who's preaching this, makes this clear at the end because he says, listen, I'll pour out my spirit upon all people, but it's only those who call upon the name of the Lord that will be saved. Equal opportunity, but not the same outcome because outcome is determined upon our participation with the opportunity that he gives. That make any sense there? Don't look at me like I'm trying to get political again. I'm not. <laughs> equal opportunity is not the same as equal outcome. God is an equal opportunist. I'll pour out my spirit upon all, but it's up to you to see what you do with that. Because if you become sons and daughters, if you become my servants, then you take that opportunity I give to all and you will make something happen. You will see an outcome that many people actually won't see unless they lay hold of what is available to them. Because it's only those who call upon the name of the Lord that will be saved. It is the partnership of faith. Verse 19 continues this Joel prophecy. It says, I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below. Some of them will be blood, fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Oh my goodness. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. This is very typical apocalyptic language that the Jewish prophets use. Remember, this is a Jewish Hebrew prophet called Joel. Don't know exactly when he was prophesying. He's one of the hardest guys to date. But um, <laughs> he's a bad date. But uh, he's one of the hardest guys to date. But he's a Hebrew prophet. And this is very clear apocalyptic uh, language about the, the uh, using cosmic language to describe something very, very significant that is taking place. You're going to see this this week as you read through David on YouTube with me because when Saul dies, Saul's trying to kill David, right? And Saul dies and when Saul dies, David sings a song after Saul, his enemy, or the, the, the army of Saul was defeated and he said, God blasted his nostrils. The earth shook, fire came out, the earth opened up, the, the, the pangs of the sea exposed themselves. He says there was lightning and flashes and your arrows, you spin against your enemies. Uh, no, David, that didn't happen. Saul just killed himself. That's all that happened, mate. <laughs> so something that's very physical and practical that happened, David comes as a prophet and he uses this great apocalyptic language to describe the significance of that very physical event. And so sometimes when you read passages like this, you don't, don't have to think that the literal moon will turn to blood. How the heck is the moon, that big rock in the sky, going to turn to liquid? What's going to... What? Okay, no, it's apocalyptic language used to describe something of a significant event that's going to take place. It's that kind of language. That's what Joel's doing here. Enough of that. Verse 21, his conclusion is, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord takes that opportunity. You must believe to receive and call on his name. You must believe to receive and that means calling on his name. 
You can go back through our podcast and listen to me preach at Christmas last year about the names of Jesus. Because by calling on his name, what you're doing is you're recognizing who he is. Okay, you're recognizing Jesus means God saves. So by calling on his name, you're saying, I admit you are the one that salvation comes from. His name is Emmanuel. I admit you are God with me. That's what happens when you call on his name. He is King of Kings. I admit you are Lord. So calling on his name is acknowledging who he is. Those who acknowledge who he is will receive the benefits that he brings. Those who acknowledge who he is will take the equal opportunity that's given to all and maximise that outcome in their life. That is why I continually say to you beautiful people, your main purpose in life is to know him. That's all that matters. Knowing him is everything. Knowing him is eternal life because it is acknowledging who he is. ABC, acknowledge him. Believe he is who he is and cooperate with that. Embrace that relationship with him. It is the most important thing. God might be an equal opportunist, you know, whatever, but you need to receive who he is. Call on his name. Say, Jesus, this is who you are. And that's why reading, as you read David and the Psalms, it'll help you see that David does that. The, the stuff that he goes through in life and how he calls on the various attributes of God to deal with that situation. When what's his name? When God appeared to what's his name? Moses at the burning bush. God, and Moses said to him, what's your name? Tell me your name. What should I say that your name is to people when I go to them? And God said, my name's Yahweh. Yahweh. Breath, Yahweh. I am that I am. He said the most profound thing. He says, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob knew me by El Elyon. They knew me by that name. But by my name, Jehovah, Yahweh, they did not know me. By my name, Yahweh, they did not know me. And I read that one day and then I looked back through the book of Genesis and God is called Yahweh through the stories of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God spoke to me and said, it's possible to know my name but not know me by that name. Because God doesn't say they didn't know my name was Yahweh. He said, by my name they did not know me. So you might know that Jesus is someone that could heal. Jesus is healer. Oh yeah, I know that. But you need to know him by that name. I know he is the restorer of things. You might come to a point in your life where you need to say, I need to know him as restorer. Not just know that that's his name, but know him by that name. Does that make, it, that make any sense? But some of us are you know that God is called Father, but to know Him as Father is a is a challenge or a thing that we you I trust walk into to know Him by that name, so you can literally call Him Dad and mean it. It's getting 
distracted. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm just trying to emphasize again to you. Please understand his name and please ask him to reveal himself to you by those names so you may know him according to who he's revealed himself to be. Speed me up. This is Rob's favorite bit. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, more evidence of Holy Spirit, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. This is the guy that couldn't, was confronted by a 10-year-old girl weeks later, weeks earlier, and didn't even have the courage in front of a 10-year-old girl to say, yeah, I, I know Jesus. And now he's standing up in a crowd of thousands of religious zealots at the, relig- the peak of one of their religious festivals. <laughs> and he's saying to them, you guys killed him. That's an internal working that brings courage and confidence. And some of you need confidence today. Some of you need internal confidence that says, I, I, I can stand. I, I grew up in a Christian family and the way I described my upbringing as a kid was that I believed God existed, but I didn't know He was real until I was 15 and I experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I went to a camp, I was watching all these 14, 15-year-olds worship and I'm like, well, they actually mean this. I'm just singing the songs or trying to, Shout to the Lord. It was a long time ago. And, but they actually mean this. And I walked away and I think, I want to know, I need to know that you're real. I'm not leaving this place until I know. Because at that camp, got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that, I needed that. And don't, don't argue with me the difference between believing and knowing, whatever. I'm just describing my teenage language. I went from believing to knowing. And so then two, a couple of years later, when I'm sitting at university and I'm studying philosophy, and I'm in tutorials where the philosophy lecturer knows that I'm the only Christian in the room and any curly question he'll pounce onto me to try to break me I could sit there at 17, 18 years of age and just know because my mind might not be able to answer any question but I have an internal confidence that makes me not arrogant but just confident and so like Joseph you can put on the coat that your dad gave you and wear it, even though people may mock you about it, because you know, I'm not arrogant about this, I just know that I know. It's my dad's coat and I'm going to wear it. I'm going to wear the confidence he gave me. But some of you need confidence, the Holy Spirit is your key to that. Knowing the Holy Spirit and a result like this for Peter, he can stand up boldly, not arrogantly, but boldly. What a great internal work that has been happening in this man's life. He continues on, he talks about David the prophet, I won't go to all that, but down to verse 36 and then I'll shift the gear. He says, Therefore that all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Do you remember the 50th day after Moses did the blood? The people were cut to the heart with swords and they died. This day, 
Peter gets up. He preaches the word of conviction. They were cut to the heart with the sword of the Spirit. And under Moses on the 50th day, 3,000 people died. Go read the story. In this story, 3,000 people are cut to the heart and they say, we've got to do something about this. I've got it. Being given an opportunity, I'm now going to take advantage. What do I do? And that's the difference between condemnation, one of the differences between condemnation and conviction. Being cut to the heart is being convicted. It's like, ooh, things are not quite as they could be or should be. But I've got hope that says, I'll do something about it, just let me know. Okay? There's humility in that. Condemnation says, you've screwed up and now you're dead. <laughs> Conviction says, okay, okay, I think I might have done something wrong, but I've got hope, just tell me what to do. Taking ownership, responsibility, they were cut to the heart. It's a beautiful thing. And Peter gives them instructions. He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, your children, and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. It's interesting, you may not realize how subtle that is, but that last passage, all whom the Lord our God will call, is the last word of Joel's prophecy. So he started Joel's prophecy. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on flesh. And then he got distracted with David. <laughs> and now he caps off that prophecy for all who God will call. God is calling you. If you hear him call you, then you call on his name. If you hear him call you, no one comes to the Father unless he is called. I wonder if today you've never heard God's, you don't ever believe you've heard God speak to you. You're wondering about this whole Christianity thing or the reality of God thing. Maybe God's tracking you. Maybe God is actually calling you. Maybe today in your heart, as best as you can describe that, you are hearing a voice say, this is for you. That love that people were experiencing before, that worship people were experiencing before, that is for you. This relationship that guy in the black's been talking about, that's for you. Something about that, hearing the voice of God call us, God's giving you an opportunity to call back to him and say, I may not understand it all, but Jesus, I acknowledge that you, your name is Lord and I want you to be my boss. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. We looked at that a few weeks ago, Deuteronomy 32. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This is just more evidence of what happens to people when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them. There's a devotion to community, obedience to basic instructions like baptism, and devotion to community and learning together. Some of you need to get baptized this year. In two weeks, we'll hear a story here about a teenager here who recently got baptized. I'm hoping. And hopefully we'll hear more baptism testimonies. But baptism is a very simple instruction. And one of the evidences of God's dealing in your life is obeying Him in simple things like that. Verse 43, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. This is actually immature, that previous verse. Because at this stage of the church life, it was only the apostles who were doing the signs and wonders. But as you keep reading the book of Acts, it becomes normal people that end up performing signs and wonders and healings as well. I'll tell you a story about that in a moment. 
Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to those who had need. Generosity is a natural outworking of God's spirit and so is wisdom. Some people like to use this verse and go, this sounds like a religious commune. Everyone pooling their possessions. I'm not getting political again, but this is not communism. Because these people followed a prophet called Jesus. And Jesus had told them that this city would soon be involved in a war. And when you know your city is about to be involved in a war, that means your land value goes down. So they were wise to sell their properties now. Never mind. Every day, (laughs) it's like this is also fulfilling the prophetic picture of God's people getting ready to leave Egypt and start a whole new journey. Because that's what God's people did when they came out of Egypt. They, They got their business together. Anyway, verse 46. Every day, they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They're meeting in the public place and the private place. I believe in church to be big and public and I believe in church to be small and intimate. And both are valid. Gathering together in homes where you're looking across the coffee table from someone who knows you and knows the stuff in your life. And gathering together in crowds in the temple courts, gathering together to worship because there is a sign of numbers together that tells people, whoa, there's something happening here. Both private and public gatherings and evidence of the Holy Spirit. They were praising God and enjoyed the favor of all the people, at least for a while. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I don't have a neat and tidy message today. I don't have three points, three C's or three P's or anything like that. But I trust that somewhere you've seen some evidences of what things can look like when the Holy Spirit takes a hold of his people. What things can look like when we take the opportunity of the outpouring, the promise of infilling, out in, when we take that promise and the potential outcomes that there can be. Because we're not just reading history as much as you know I like to dig into a little bit of history and make you think and all that sort of stuff. The main thing is that you take away today, this is for us today. This is not just some historical story. I leave knowing that the number 50 is Pentecost. But this is knowing, Lord God, this power, this person, this purpose is for today. Because that same Holy Spirit is for us now. Amen? This has been a podcast from Bayside Church International. Thanks for listening.